Father, it is an honor, a privilege to know you. To think that that power we sang about, the power of the cross, has been applied to, to us as believers. And to think that you took our sin and put it on Jesus and he bore the wrath of God we deserved. And then you took his righteousness and you have imputed it to our account so that you see us as righteous, the righteousness of God in Christ. And that you accept us and receive us and you live in us and you walk with us through every storm, every trial, every desert, every problem as we sang about in that first song. Lord, help us because it's easy for us to make these statements that though I'm walking through the desert place, still I will say, blessed be the Lord, but we don't. We know we can, but we don't. Forgive us when we walk in the flesh. Forgive us for not walking in the spirit. Forgive us when we think we've got it. Forgive us where we think we're capable because the truth is we are not enough. That's why we have to look to you. And it's not, Lord, that you just finish what we start. You have to do all of it. And so forgive us when we think that we even can uh, get it started for you. And then you just help push us across the goal line or something. It's all of you. It's all by you. It's all for you. And it's all to glorify you, Lord. And uh, help us to remember that. And forgive us when we don't. And correct us when we don't. And we pray for our people. And we Rejoice in the new baby. And thank you, Lord, for little Levi. And we also uh, thank you, Lord, that as we go through our trials, we never go through them alone, that you are always with us. And I think about uh, my brother Chuck Lewis this morning as I have him on my mind. And I know that he doesn't feel well and he's suffering. And I pray for him and ask you to bless him. But he's not the only one. There are unspeakable burdens that are being borne by people that are seated here in these chairs in front of me. Things that are silent and quiet and yet they are ravaging the heart and the soul and the minds of people. Oh Lord, would you speak peace to them today and to their weary souls? You said that if we would come to you when we're weary, a lot of us are weary, when we're heavy laden, a lot of us are heavy laden. We're burdened down by things we can't control. You said if we would come to you, you would give us rest for our souls. And so we claim that now. And we ask you, Father, to give us that peace that only you can give. And also with that peace, give us joy in the midst of the journey, in the midst of the trial, in the midst of the problem. We pray that you would heal those who are sick. We pray that you would comfort those who are grieving. We pray that you would lift up those who are discouraged. And we pray that you would save those who are lost. And we pray all of this would be to the glory of your great name. Never let us forget that. We wear proudly the name of sports teams and brands and things like that. But today, we want to focus on the greatest name of all, the name that is above every other name, the name of our King, the name of our Lord, the na name of our Savior, the name of our Master, and the name of our friend. And that is the name of Jesus. And so we pray this. In Jesus' name and for his glory. And all God's people said, amen. Let's take our Bibles this morning. And again, we're going to look at the, uh, one of the most familiar chapters in the Word of God. One of the most 
love chapters in the Word of God. We're going to look in John chapter 3, and we're going to try to uh, cover more ground in it today, and we'll look at it. And I want to uh, try to keep it as simple as possible for this particular reason. In our Sunday school class, when we were talking about what Paul said to the Galatians about walking in the Spirit, the question came up, why can't we be more like the Apostle Paul? Why do we not see that replicated? And we talked about some of our reasons. Pride, we don't think long term. Um, We're arrogant, think we can handle things ourselves. And kind of summed it up by saying this, it's, it's immaturity in our lives. And the Lord understands that. He knows where we are. And in the Psalms, he even says he remembers our frame that we are dust. And I'm so glad that he does. He knows where you are today. And uh, he doesn't expect more out of you than uh, what you're capable of living in. You may have been saved five minutes. Certainly you're not going to live like somebody who's been saved 50 years or or shouldn't. Hopefully they've grown by then. And uh, he knows where we are and he knows what we're doing. But he's testing us. And in that testing, he reveals our weakness. He reveals our immaturity. He reveals our inadequacy. And so instead of going around like the world saying, you are enough. No, no, we're not. But we look to the God who is enough for every situation in which we find ourselves. So we find Nicodemus, this Pharisee, this ruler of the Jews, a member of the Jewish high court, supreme court, the Sanhedrin it's called. But he's also a Pharisee, a Pharisee that made him very proud of who he was, an elite group. The Pharisees were, maybe they saw themselves as the Marines of all of the Jews or special ops of all of the Jews. They were elite. They were different. They were not just common, ordinary people. And you remember we said last week that the Pharisees took a pledge in the presence of three witnesses that they would keep all of the law, not just the law of Moses, but the law of the scribes, the amplification of all of the laws. And they would dedicate their life to doing that, washing their hands just the right way at the right time, uh, not violating the Sabbath even by the knots that they tied or untied. Remember that? Just crazy type of stuff. Now, what did that do? That caused their flesh to say, you're better than other people. And I have no doubt that when Nicodemus came to the Lord, that, you know, we uh, always hear him saying he came by night and he had some questions, but he didn't really ask a question until the Lord made a statement. And then his question was kind of a question of doubt, wasn't it? Nicodemus had never had anybody tell him that he wasn't enough. He thought he was enough. He thought he was doing everything he needed to do to be everything he needed to be so that the kingdom of God could actually come to Israel. You know what Nicodemus thought, like all the other Pharisees? Why hasn't God rescued us? Why are Gentiles occupying and ruling over our land? Why is all this happening? It's because of them. It's because of the other Jews who have not taken the vows and don't live as strict as we do. It's not our fault. It's their fault. Imagine their shock and surprise when Jesus kept pointing out the flaws of whom? Not the common people. Not that they didn't have any. Of course they did. But he pointed out the flaws of the Pharisees. The ones that were considered the brightest, the best, the most dedicated, the most committed, the one who had made vows, the ones who held themselves to a higher standard. 
And the Pharisees were angry at the other people. The other people were keeping the Messiah from coming. The other people weren't living holy enough to drive out the Romans. And all of this stuff is happening there. And it's their fault, God. And so he could stand before the Lord in the temple and say, I thank you that I am not as other men are. Does that make sense now? Even as this Pharisee, I mean this publican, so because of that, they blamed other people and they saw themselves as elite, better than other people. Well, now Jesus comes along and there's something weird about this Jesus. He's not a Pharisee. And yet, his life is exemplary and the power of God is obviously upon him. And you remember Nicodemus comes and he uses the plural. He said, we know that you are a man sent from God because no one can do this except God be with him. Who are the we there? Nicodemus wasn't schizophrenic or anything like that. What he was saying is, we're speaking for all the rest of the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin. We know more than we want to admit. We see more than we want to see. And we don't understand it because you should be one of us to have this kind of power. And you know, Jesus didn't even dignify that answer. He just looked at him and said, Nicodemus... You must be born again. And Nicodemus is just so confused by all of that. And uh, it doesn't make any sense to him because the things of God are not, they don't make sense to lost people because they have dead minds, depraved minds. And these things are spiritually discerned. Remember when Peter said to Jesus, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus said, Peter, you're blessed because flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my father which is in heaven. And that's the only way we know anything. That's the only way we come to the end of ourselves. That's the only way that we repent. That's the only way that we receive Christ is that we are drawn by the Father and the Father reveals Christ to us. Otherwise, we would go along just the way that we are, thinking that we're okay, thinking that we're enough, thinking that... Uh, God is just, you know, a grandfatherly old God and a rocker. And he'll, uh, he, he doesn't care about that. Never mind, it's no big deal. And so uh, as we look, carry on with this uh, uh, situation where Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus, Nicodemus isn't saved yet. He later on gets saved, but not yet, not yet. And um, sin is defined as falling short of God's glory. So I almost entitled this sermon Nicodemus falling shorts but I don't know I didn't think that would be correct and polite company right and uh, you've heard the joke about the guy that prayed and said oh Lord forgive us our, of our sins and our falling shorts and you know we can say things and mess everything up but the truth is we do fall short of the glory of God and anything in your life that falls short of the glory of God is sin and so we're to do all things, Paul said, whether we eat or whether we drink, to do all to the glory of God. How'd you do this week? How'd you do this week? How'd you do with the all things part of that verse? Very, very difficult. Not just the big things, not just the religious things, not just the churchy things, not just before a meal as a ritual or a habit, but do all things. Whether you eat or drink, the most mundane things of life are to be to the glory of God survival going to work uh, taking care of yourself clothing your children all of that to the glory of God and sin is defined as falling short 
of the glory of God. So as we look at this, I want to point out three simple things where Nicodemus actually fell very far short, like the football player that runs and runs and runs and is tackled and stretches out the ball, but it doesn't cross the plane of the goal, so he has no score. Heartbreak of a game where you run out of time and you run out of real estate six inches short of the goal that would have won you the game. That's the way we find ourselves. No matter how good we are, it always falls short of what God demands. So Nicodemus is up against the eternal problem, the problem of the man who wants to be changed. A lot of people, a lot of lost people want to change and who cannot change himself. Now, how many people do you know? They say, I want this, but I can't figure out how to do it. I can't seem to get it done. The alcoholic, maybe the person who's involved in pornography, maybe the person who is addicted to drugs, they try. They sincerely try. They want to. Maybe the person that can't get along with his wife or the wife that can't get along with their husbands and they promise to do better, they try to do better, but then they say that one thing that just triggers a big argument or a problem that comes up and uh, things like that. What about the child that wants to please their parents but they can't? It's never quite enough. It's never quite good enough. It was never at the right time. Never quite there. Uh, it's a hard thing. That's the world in which we live. And a lot of them want to change. And they say, I just can't get it done. And that's Nicodemus. The reason he's coming to Christ, there must be some reason that he is seeking out Jesus by night. He's not very bold about it, but he's doing it by night. Because he looks at all of his righteousness. I mean, remember, the scribes had written 24 chapters of commentary about the Sabbath and what's work on the Sabbath. Could you do that? 24 chapters. My goodness gracious. How does anybody remember all that and keep all of that? And yet that's what the Pharisees were bound by an oath to do. And Nicodemus was seeing some things about himself and he saw a difference in the Lord Jesus Christ. So he comes and he goes, you know, we know that you've got to be from God or you couldn't do these things. And then Jesus says that puzzling statement, you must be born again. And if you're not born again, you can't see the kingdom of heaven. What? The Pharisees thought if anybody was going to see the kingdom, it'd be them. After all, there are the holy ones, the separate ones. We're not like all of the riffraff out there. They're the ones that are keeping the kingdom from coming. We're the ones that want the king to come. And yet they were such righteous, self-righteous hypocrites that they couldn't even see it and know uh, what the problem really was. That's the tragedy of a lost person. That's the tragedy of pride. That's the tragedy of the way that we live and the way that we are even now uh, outside of Jesus Christ. So let's read the scripture, John 3. Let's look at verse 10 through 21, and we'll get the whole idea and the whole thought here. Verse 10, Jesus answered and said to him, are you a teacher of Israel and do not know these things? That was a little bit insulting, actually. Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. Now, there's the key 
thing to the problem. It's unbelief, actually, isn't it? Verse 12. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, well, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, he's speaking of himself, that is the Son of Man, that's Jesus, who is uh, in heaven, the one that came from heaven, lived in heaven, wasn't created, always existed, according to John 1, and then came to earth, right? And then he tells us in verse 14, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, I believe that's in Numbers 21, if you were wanting to read about that, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, and uh, whoever believes in him should not perish, but have an interesting thing, not just everlasting life, life that doesn't end, but eternal life. The life of God is what that is. Would you like to have the life of God today? Well, if you're a believer, you do. And if you're not, then trust Christ as your Savior and Lord, and you will have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned. Let that sink in, believer. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned. When, church? Let that sink in. Not waiting for condemnation, already under it. Everybody you know that's not saved, condemned already. Why? Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. It's all about Jesus. And this is the condemnation that the light, that's Jesus speaking of himself, has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light. Doesn't most crime take place in the dark? And does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen, in other words, nothing to hide, that they may be done in God. Now, a lot of things you could take and take apart and get in all the details. I don't want to get into uh, a place in a passage like this, as, I'm, uh, uh, as I tend to do, where we examine all the trees and miss the beauty of the forest. So let's look at it like this. Number one... Nicodemus fell short in his understanding of Jesus. He came to him and he doesn't, say, he doesn't say, we know you're the Messiah. We know that you are the only payment for sin. We know that you are the king of the universe, the creator of all things. He doesn't say that. He does say, we know that you are a man sent from God. Well, to be honest, that could be said of Isaiah, couldn't it? That could be said of John the Baptist, couldn't it? That could be said of Elijah. That could be said of a lot of people in the Bible. 
And uh, it is true of Jesus because Jesus could not be the Messiah unless he was a man sent from God. But a lot of men who were sent of God were not the Messiah. Nicodemus hasn't quite come to the conclusion and to the commitment and the surrender of his life to Jesus Christ as the Lord of God. He falls short of all of that. We, we know that you're something special. We know that you're different. We know that you're not like us. We know that there is something amazing about you. And notice that uh, when Jesus makes a statement, he answered and said to him, Are you a teacher of Israel and do not know these things? A teacher of Israel was somebody who is elite, somebody who is exalted. We might think of somebody maybe who is in a prestigious university and and has advanced terminal degrees or things like that. And we go, well, you're the expert. You know more about this than I do. And Jesus says to him, "You you mean you're an expert in the things that Israel thinks about the law of God, the worship of God, the word of God, and and you don't get this? Seriously? That'd be like going to a heart surgeon, and the heart surgeon, as he's talking to you about your upcoming surgery, saying something like this, well, we're going to open you up, and we're going to repair your valve, but I'm not really sure how this works. What would you say? Or if you were to go to your heart surgeon and, and, and say, I, I need a new valve, are you going to put a mechanical valve? He goes, oh, I didn't know they had those. Can you imagine something like that? I mean, it's personal for me, but uh, you can apply it to yourself as well. And that's what Jesus really is saying. Okay, Mr. Expert, Mr. Pharisee, you, you don't know these things? Now, it might be easy for us to say, well, of course not. This is... You know, somebody who lives in the Old Testament world and he doesn't understand grace and he doesn't understand anything uh, about this. But yet Jesus points it out for a reason and he says, Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and we testify what we have seen and you do not receive our witness. Now Jesus is saying there, well, if you knew it, you could talk about it because we talk about the things we know about. We talk about the things we've experienced. We talk about the things we love. We talk about what we know. And you're not talking about it and you don't understand it because you have no clue. You have no idea. And he said, and the reason is basically unbelief. Now, we need to remember that when we think about lost people. It's not that the world out there, it's not that your husband or your wife or your children or anything, they just need more information. They do need the gospel because it's the power of God unto salvation. But it's not a matter of information here. Nicodemus is a very, very smart man. This is not about intellect, is it? He said, the problem is you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things, and by earthly things, think about this. You've distorted, Nicodemus, the whole law and the whole purpose of God made it into something it was never intended to be. You can't even get that right. Much less the fact, where are people born again? Not in heaven. They're born again on earth. Now. This is the time. And I'm talking about something that has to happen in your life now while you are on earth. And you don't even get that. 
Well, he's certainly not going to understand the doctrine of the Trinity or the doctrine of predestination or the doctrine of the Holy Spirit or anything like that because you have to be born again before you can get any understanding into the other truths of the Word of God. And so uh, Jesus is kind of romping on him a little bit. In fact, he's telling him to... Uh, reference back to our Sunday school lesson. Hey, Nicodemus, with all of your accomplishments, with all of your education, with all of your vows, with all of your knowledge, with all of your piety and all of that, you're not enough. You have to be born again. And Nicodemus was right when he said, how can a man be born again? That's a really good question because you can't. And you can't do it yourself. This is obviously a work of God. So it's not a matter of intellect, but it boils down to faith. It boils down to belief. The word belief or believe is used about seven times uh, in, in uh, this passage here. And uh, that's a favorite word of the Apostle John because that's really what it boils down to. So you who are an expert in the law, who think yourself better than everyone else, who think that you're the reason the kingdom should come and everybody else is keeping it away, you who look down your nose at all of these people, you don't, you don't understand what I'm saying, do you? And that's because that which is born of flesh is flesh and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. And so this is something that Nicodemus should have been familiar with because it's taught not exactly in these words but pretty clear in the Old Testament. Would you consider Ezekiel 36, 25 through 28? God is speaking and he says, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone, that hardened dead heart out of your stone and give you a heart of flesh, not the old nature flesh, but a living beating heart that really does work. And he's speaking, of course, in a metaphor for uh, the new nature that he gives us and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put... My Spirit, capital S, the Holy Spirit, within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. Boy, what wonderful promises those are. Nicodemus should have known those things and should have been praying for those things and he should have recognized those things in Jesus. It's not just his miracles. This is the one sent from God to be the Messiah that could cleanse our lives. John the Baptist could get you wet, but he couldn't cleanse you from your sin. But Jesus can cleanse you. Notice in that passage in Ezekiel, God says, I will sprinkle you. I will cleanse you. I will take out your old heart. I will give you a new heart. I will give you my spirit. And then you will do everything you know you're supposed to do now. Except now you'll have the power and the ability to do that. That's what it means 
to be born again. We're not just people who decided to add a little Jesus into our lives. We're not just people who decided to be better people. We're not just people who had willpower and changed our lives. We're not just people who decided we like church people better than we do people in our neighborhood. So we started coming here. No, this is not it. We have been born again by the Lord and only the Lord could do that and Nicodemus never saw that in Jesus until the Lord Jesus said these words unto him and uh, the Bible goes on to say that uh, in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 30 and verse 6 it says and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord our God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Now you can't do that yourself. That has to be done for you and that is done by God for you. So here we are, a bunch of people who you may say, well, you just decided to change and you decided to go to church and you decided to go to be different. And we would all say to you, and I'm going to ask you to say amen to this in a moment, that if you think that, you are dead wrong about us. We are sinners. We could not change ourselves. We could not do it ourselves. And we have come to understand that God does this for people like us. He doesn't do this for the perfect. He doesn't do this for the good. He doesn't do this for the religious. He doesn't do this for those with a lot of discipline and a lot of willpower and those who just try harder. Our message is not do better, do more, and try harder. That's never going to be enough. Our message is surrender to Jesus Christ because you can't, but He can. And He can give you brand new life and make you into a new creature through His death, burial, and resurrection because He paid for our sins in full. So we come here in honor of Him. So that's number one. Nicodemus didn't understand Jesus. You know what the problem is with you if you're not saved? You don't understand Jesus. You've missed it. You may have ideas about him, thoughts about him, and uh, concepts about him, but you don't know him. And you don't understand him. And like Nicodemus, you're just baffled by all of these things. Or you just flat out want nothing to do with them or don't believe them, as Jesus said was the problem with the Pharisees. In other words, isn't it interesting? You may be the most libertine person doing all the things and saying I'm free and you may be the biggest Pharisee among us. Because while you claim to be tolerant, you're certainly not tolerant of God or of His Word or of His uh, of being born again or of Christians or anything like that. Isn't that ironic? And so the people who claim to be the least Pharisaical are the most when you really get down to it. So let's look at another thing. Nicodemus fell short in understanding how redemption happens. Okay, Nicodemus, you're a teacher of the Jew. You've been a Pharisee a long time. You've been through a lot. You've seen the thick and the thin of everything, and you know how it all works, right? Because you are, after all, a teacher of Israel. You're an expert, and you are sitting in the chair of whoever, and uh, you've got all of these answers, right? And you can just see Nicodemus. He goes, what, my child, would you like to know? How? Do I get right with God? Oh, you must do more good works. You must observe the law to the nth degree. And you must keep all of the feasts, all of the festivals, 
And you must do it with your whole heart and never miss a beat. That's what Nicodemus thought righteousness was. That's what he had made a vow or a pledge to. He was going to do his best in everything that he did. But your best isn't good enough and your best is always sinful and your best is always inadequate <clears throat> and falls short of the goal and short of the glory of God. Now Jesus said you need something bigger than that. You need someone who has a, uh, not just someone who claims to be a good moral teacher and all of that, but someone who, uh, verse nine, uh, 13 says, who has access to heaven, access to heaven. Now, Jesus was in heaven because he was there at the creation of the world, and then he came down to earth, but he could go back to heaven really anytime he wanted to, anytime he wanted to. In fact, when his crucifixion was coming near, he said, don't you know I could cry out to my father and he would send ten legions of angels? In other words, Jesus could go back anytime that he pleased. He had access to the throne room of heaven. Did Nicodemus? No. Nicodemus couldn't get to heaven, and Nicodemus certainly didn't come from heaven. He's just a man, just a human, a sinful human, a human who is trying to appear righteous, but always falling short of the standard of God. Jesus said you need something bigger and better than that, like the one who came down from heaven. That is the Son of Man speaking of himself who is in heaven, the one who is part of heaven that has the characteristics of heaven, who carry heaven everywhere Jesus went, heaven went with him, in other words. So, verse 14 says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, in Numbers 21, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now, you remember in that story that the people of Israel had sinned, and they said, we don't want Moses, we don't want to follow God, we want to go back to Egypt, you brought us out here to die. And God sent fiery serpents into the camp. So they were biting people and they were horrible. And the people came back to Moses. Oh, we've sinned. You know how we all do. We've sinned. Please get this scourge off of us. So Moses got instruction from the Lord to take a serpent, a bronze serpent, put it on a pole, hold it up high. And anybody who looked to the serpent that Moses held up would live. Okay? And Jesus says, that's a symbol of me. I will be lifted up one of these days and everyone who looks to me alone for salvation will be redeemed, will live. Well, that wasn't anything on Nicodemus' radar. What about the commandments? What about the laws? What about all the commentaries? What about all the extra things we do? What about when we went the extra mile in our sacrificial system? What, if we, what about the times we went far beyond what you demanded? Don't we get points for that? Don't we get extra points for doing that and Jesus said no the only thing that you can do to be saved is to like the people look to that serpent we look to Jesus Jesus is lifted up and when Jesus makes reference to him being lifted up it's a picture of him being on the cross everybody who looks to the cross we sang about the power of the cross everyone who looks to the Christ of the cross who died on that cross for our sins, will be saved. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. We dare not trust the sweetest frame, but completely and wholly lean on Jesus' name. That's what he's saying. 
But John likes to use things that have sometimes two or three meanings on things. He's also going to be lifted up because after he died, he was buried. And then on the third day, he rose again. And 40 days later, where did he go? He was lifted up once again. And he is seated today at the right hand of God the Father, where he sits and rules as Lord of all. That's what it means to be lifted up. Nicodemus, like most lost people, roam right over their heads. Made absolutely no sense. But what about what I've done? And what about what I've accomplished? And what about what I went through? And what about my suffering? And what about my sacrifice? And what about, what about, what about, what about? No, it all comes down to this. Have you looked to Jesus and Jesus alone for your salvation? That's where redemption is found. You can't, but he can because, again, you are not enough. For God so loved the world, that most famous verse, that he gave his one and only, only begotten son, the unique son of God, that whoever believes in him should not perish, go to hell, but have everlasting life. Okay, well, so are lost people in neutral? For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. So that tells us more. And Jesus goes on to say in the next verse that the lost are condemned already. So all of those people that you know, all of those people you love, all of the people that you interact with and care about are not waiting to be condemned. They're already condemned because they have not looked to Jesus in faith by his grace in order to be saved. So if you're adding anything to Jesus and that's what makes you know that you're saved, that's not salvation. That's not redemption. You're a Pharisee like Nicodemus thinking you can earn it and achieve it by yourself and God's going to give you extra points for all the good things you do. But he doesn't. He says you have to look unto Jesus and Jesus alone because only Jesus is qualified to be the payment for sin and he has been lifted up on a cross and also in his ascension as Lord of all and only he can save. Thirdly, the last thing, Nicodemus fell short in understanding obedience. Nicodemus, are you an obedient follower of Yahweh? Nicodemus would have said, how dare you? even ask me that question how dare you even raise that up how dare you even insinuate that there's a possibility that i'm not right with god can't you see it i'm one of the elite i made a vow i keep it to the minute detail you remember jesus saying about the pharisees you ready for this they tithed off of the mint and the dill and the cumin. Do you tithe off of your spice cabinet? When you buy spices for your barbecue, you say, one-tenth goes to the Lord. You say, well, that's silly. Yeah, it is. But that's what they did. And Jesus said, and you missed the point of the law. Justice and mercy and those type of things. You're so detailed on all of this that you miss the point. It's kind of like you're so busy, you can't see the forest for the trees. A lot of people are like that. A lot of people you know are like that. You may even be like that. And that's because you really don't understand what obedience is. You assume you're obedient by being in church this morning. Well, are you? I don't know. I don't know your heart. You can be sitting here singing all the songs and listening to me and your heart be on Pluto. 
That's not the command of God. You could be the kind of person where you say, well, every time there's a death on my block, I take a meal to him. Well, that's good. That's very nice of you. I'm glad that you do that. But you may be doing it saying, I can't stand these people. Serve them right if I put too much salt in this casserole. But we don't know that. And you take it to them. You may be doing it because you want to be the president of your HOA. God help you if you do. There's another sin. But you take it out there and you put it in there and you're doing it because you want people to notice you. And you make sure you do it at a time of day when people are coming home from work so they can look and say, oh, look at her bringing that. Oh, that is so sweet. And uh, you get nominated for Citizen of the Month or something like that. We don't know. The Bible says before you came here this morning, you're to do it in Hebrews 10, 24, considering others, did you? And how you may encourage them to love and good deeds. Have you? Are you just sitting there coming, going, putting your time and leaving? You don't get credit for that. That's not why you come. We're a body. And we do it for the glory of God and as we worship God. But you're supposed to interact and encourage other people. Are you? Well, no, but I'm in church every time the doors are open. Yeah, but if you're not doing anything when you come and you're not using your gifts and you're not involved in other people's lives... You're not obedient to the scripture. You see, we have a bad idea, a wrong idea like Nicodemus does about obedience. And we try to figure out how we can do it in the most convenient way, the most efficient way, where it won't cost us much, where it won't take up much time, where we can get it done, be done with it, and go about our own business. Really? Are you even saved? Is that the... Way you think, are you even born again if you do that? You sound more like a Pharisee. Going through the motions, resenting it, and doing it just to get by, just to look good in front of other people. If that's the case, examine yourselves to see whether you be in the faith. You may be as lost as Nicodemus was in this particular situation. He who believes in him is not condemned... But he who does not believe, that's the issue, is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation that light has come into the world. And what does a lost person always do? And men loved darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds were evil for everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deed should be exposed but you know what's different about people that are saved we tend to expose ourselves people can see our motives and our love for christ and we even confess our sins to one another we're the ones that come together today not to say Praise me from whom all blessings flow, or something like that. I am the source of blessings, and I will give my blessings to you unworthy people. No, because it's not from us. We are the unworthy. We are the broken. We are the sinful. We are the ones who deserve hell, and we freely admit that, don't we, church? We look and we realize when the Bible says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but believers, Christians, are the first ones to put their hand up. You know what the problem is with most people? We can't get them saved because we can't get them lost. They don't really get it. 
But you, if you've been born again, you, you were lost. You were under conviction of your sin. And that's why the Holy Spirit drew you unto the Savior. You had no other place to go. You could not do it yourself. You could not cleanse yourself. You could not save yourself. You're like a two-year-old that makes a mess in mommy's makeup and you try to clean it up so it doesn't look like anything happened. And what you did was make a bigger mess. And you can't figure out how your mom knew you were into it. Have you been into my makeup? No. You got it smeared all over your face. It's on the wall. It's on the carpet. And you tried to clean it up. You ever had a kid that did something like that? Yeah. Some little kid that takes their diaper off themselves. Oh, heaven help us when that happens. Right? That's the way we are before God. Well, what else are you going to do? You own up to it. I've sinned. I've fallen short of the glory of God. And Jesus' blood is the only thing that can clean me up. Oh, Father, please, I surrender myself to you. And I give myself to you. And I ask you to be the Lord of my life. And I believe that you died. You were buried. You rose from the dead. And I want you to be my Savior and Lord. And I want to be cleansed by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how you're born again, by trusting in Him. And why you're born again is because He drew you unto Him. It's not because you're smart or better than anyone else. It had to be revealed to you. And the Spirit of God had to be at work in your life. So you're no better than anybody out in the world. You're no better than the people you live with who are, are not saved, because I know some of you do. And I want you to think about it. Do you have children in your home who have never been saved? And why are you expecting them to act like Christians? Now, I didn't say don't discipline them. I didn't say don't teach them good manners. I didn't say don't bring them to church. I'm simply saying this. Even your sweet, precious little angels, as we call them, they're lost, they're depraved, they're devoid of the life of God. And it's going to be more evident as they get older and older and older. What's their problem? Oh, they stay out too late. They don't do what I tell them to do. That. No, their real problem is just like Nicodemus. They don't believe. You better be on your knees praying for them. What about that lost spouse that you have? What's their big problem? Well, they need to go to church more and they need to support me more in the things that I believe. No, that's not really their problem. Their problem is they don't believe. And that's the same problem with your neighbors. That's the same problem with politicians. Oh, those politicians, what's wrong with them? Why can't they see this? They're devoid of the Spirit of God. Demon-possessed. Led astray. Foolish. Selfish. Self-righteous. All of those kind of things. What's their problem? They need to become a Democrat. Or they need to become a Republican. Or they need to go independent. That won't do anything for them. The problem is they don't believe. Right? I mean, we can go down this list here and, and talk about it. And that's the thing that bothers me, I think, about the way we look at the world and the way we look at lost people. They act like dead people. They act like they're depraved. They act like they are alienated from God. They act like they are darkened to their under, and, and spiritual understanding. They act like they are spiritually dead, and we condemn them for that. There's really nothing else they can do. Well, why don't they just make a different decision? Why don't they just do, choose to do better? Why don't they follow my example? Oh, now we're on it. You think you're worthy of being followed by them? Back in my first pastorate, I had three really sweet ladies come to my office weeping because in all three of them, their husbands were lost. 
And they were saying, we don't understand, Brother Greg. We're seeing a lot of people saved. Why won't God save our husbands? Man, it broke my heart. Can you feel for them? We were talking and I said, I'll certainly be praying about that. And then I said, but I have one question for you. I said, please forgive me. I don't mean to be offensive. And in all of my 28-year-old wisdom, I said, why do you want them to be saved? And they just kind of looked at each other. Well, we want them to go to heaven. And I said, really? Are you concerned about their soul? Or is it because when you come to church, you resent other women who have their husbands putting their arm around their wife and you say, I wish my husband would come to church with me so I wouldn't have to sit by myself or I could have somebody put their arm around me or put their arm on my shoulder or my back while we're singing the songs? Do you want them saved because you want them to go to heaven or is it really because you get tired of getting up early on Sunday morning while he's snoring away and you have to get the two-year-old's hair fixed and you have to fix breakfast for the two-year-old and the six-year-old and you have to get them dressed and you have to go to church? Oh, it must be easier to go to church when you have a husband to help you to go to church. Is, is that what it is? Is it because you feel lonely and out of place when you come to church and boy, if my husband were here, I would feel better and I want to tell you something. It must have been of God because it broke them. And those ladies who were, some of them old enough to be my mother, said, you're right. God, forgive me. And those ladies started coming to the altar every single week to pray for their husbands. And within that year, we baptized all three of those men. Now, I know God will use a dirty vessel because he uses all of us, and we're never all that we can be. But I think sometimes God honors it when we come to him and say, God, this gunk that's on me that I'm carrying around that's not of you, would you scrape it off? Would you get it out of there so I can take a step forward into thinking like you? For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. And so many times we want lost people to be saved because we want them to vote right, because we want them not to bug us, because we want them to be obedient, because we want their support and all of that instead of caring about their souls and loving them with the love of God. And they can't help it because just like Nicodemus, they miss it in these three areas. And we think if they would just straighten up and be a little bit better, everything would be cool. No, it won't. You must be born again. And they can't do it. God forgive us. God forgive us. God forgive us. Heavenly Father... We look at this and we see that while we've been born again and Nicodemus wasn't, we still have a little bit of Nicodemus that pops up every once in a while in all of us. And we get frustrated with lost people. We get mad at lost people. We want them to change, but we don't do it for the right reason. God, help us to see they are condemned already. We should care about their souls. And we should love our God enough to present the gospel to anybody and everybody, whether they ever get saved or not. That's, that's your work, not ours. Ours is simply to be obedient and to love them with the love of God. I pray for people who have an unsaved husband, an unsaved wife, 
And I pray for them that their heart and motive would be pure. I pray for people who have unsaved children. I pray for all of us as we look at our neighbors, as we look at religious people, as we look at politicians. Let us see it through the eyes of the gospel and see it through this message we've heard this morning. Change our minds. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Pastor. Just a few announcements before we leave.